When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So glad that you are able to spend the next hour or so with me. Thanks for listening, as always. It is so great to have Anthony Amore with me. He is an art theft expert, investigator, and security practitioner. He is the director of security and chief investigator of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum where he is charged with the ongoing efforts to recover 13 works of art stolen from the museum on March 18, 1990. He also worked for the Department of Homeland Security and the Transportation Security Administration post-9-11. He has written three books. They are Stealing Rembrandts, The Untold Stories of Notorious Art Heists, and The Art of the Con, the most notorious fakes, frauds, and forgeries in the art world. His most recent, which he is here to talk about today, is called The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, the true story of Rose Dugdale and the Rusboro House Heist. Great to have you. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. So how did you you come to work in the field of art security and recovery? And were you interested in art before you began working for the museum? I was. I've always been interested in art, but ironically, uh, as a child and even as an adolescent or teenager, I never really went to art museums. I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, where there's really only one at the Rhode Island School of Design. So it's not something... That was front of mind for me as a as a young man. It was always just sports, and um, I I went into law enforcement for my career after college, and uh, ultimately I think what led me down this path is I um, in 1996 I took a job uh, with the Federal Aviation Administration. Uh, they used to have a security division, and I was a special agent for aviation security. And in that job the main functions 
were to evaluate security at airports and to do investigations. So fast forward to 2004, 2005, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum was looking for a person who could do both. And it's a unique situation for a museum to need uh, a security director and an investigator. Um, and unfortunately for the Gardner, uh, they needed someone to look for the paintings that were stolen here back in 1990. So my background fit really well for what they needed. And there was a certain kismet involved there. And um, it led me to the museum world. Interesting. Well, I'm sure that there's there's plenty that you can't say uh, as it's an ongoing investigation. But what can you tell us about the paintings stolen from the museum you work for? What were the circumstances of that theft? And how is your search going? Sure. Well, the, uh, the world's biggest property theft in history occurred at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in uh, March of 1990. And uh, on that evening, it was actually 1.24 in the morning, on the, the morning after St. Patrick's Day, two thieves disguised as police officers talked their way into the museum and they um, uh, were able, able to overpower the two guards who were working overnight. And I shouldn't you know, put too much stress in the words overpower because it wasn't a fight. It was just, you know, they told them they were under arrest and they handcuffed them and then they secured them in the basement. And then the two thieves went uh, into the galleries and stole 13 works of art, including uh, three works by Rembrandt, a Vermeer, which is the most valuable thing that's ever been stolen, um, paintings by Degas and Manet and uh, Govert Flink. And um, the paintings have not been seen since. And uh, so the investigation has been ongoing. Since then, uh, I joined in 2005 and I work alongside a, an FBI agent who's on the art crime team. And uh, we've been at it together for nearly 18 years. Uh, looking for the paintings, the investigation is grueling and frustrating. I mean, there's no other way to say uh, what it's like to be on a hunt like this. Uh, we've done a lot of work to determine who we believe stole the works. You know, we're not naming the people, but we believe we know who took them. But one of the lessons I've learned in studying art crime for almost two decades is that knowing who took masterpieces does not always equate recovering those masterpieces because there's a a gap between the people who took them and the people who uh, are holding them. So uh, the investigation is frustrating in that in that regard. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet. So this latest book of yours is centered around this very interesting woman named Rose Dugdale, a British woman whose life veers quite dramatically from the societal expectations placed upon her. Would you tell us about her? Uh, give us her background. Sure. Rose Dugdale is, uh, has always been an enigma to me. And um, I, I mentioned I've done a lot of research into art theft. And, you know, I would always come across her name. And every time I would read something about her, it would contradict what I previously thought to be true. So finally, I said, well, I'm going to research her. She's fascinating because uh, Rose Dugdale is the only woman in history to steal masterpieces. So Rose was born into 
what we would regard as extreme wealth. She was born um, in 1941 in Devonshire in England. Um, her father was uh, a wealthy uh, member of Lloyd's of London. And she grew up with all the advantages of a proper, wealthy British upbringing. Her, the estate that she lived on, you know, it had the rolling hills and she had every luxury and every opportunity from horseback riding to learning to hunt uh, with her father and his uh, friends from the war and um, went to the finest schools. She went to Miss Ironside School in um, Chelsea, uh, where she was educated alongside uh, young women of the same sort of breeding. And uh, you would envision her as being a socialite, uh, living a life of luxury and marrying well and um, enjoying the finest things in life. But she decided to take a completely radical and different path. One of the, the pivotal events in her young life was a presentation she participated in as a debutante, which was not a pleasant experience for her, uh, she would say, later in her life. You, you, you raise a great point. So her debutante season was remarkable. Rose uh, was part of the 1959 class of debutantes. And we have to think about debutantes in Great Britain at the time as something completely different than we are probably used to. This is a very exclusive class of young women who are literally going to be presented before the Queen in 1959. And what makes it remarkable is 1959 was the year that Queen Elizabeth decided she would no longer meet the debutantes. They would no longer be presented to her. So it, there couldn't be a more important year to have your daughter go through this class. And Rose was opposed to it. It was not something that she wanted to do. She felt that being paraded as a debutante during this season. See, it's not just this one evening. It's this entire season where you um, associate with your fellow debutantes and meet eligible young bachelors and such and go to social events. She felt that that was a meat market. She did not want to be paraded uh, before potential husbands. So she struck a deal with her parents, which is really remarkable. And part of the fun I had researching this book was uh, the contrast between the world in 1959 and the world today. So her deal that she struck with her parents was that, yes, she would go through the debutante season, reluctantly, if they allowed her to attend Oxford. Now, I have two daughters. Uh, they both have graduated college now, but I can tell you that if they had approached me saying they wanted to go to Oxford, I would be pleased. I wouldn't be looking to seek concessions from them uh, for, for that noble uh Goal, but that's what she did. She and she went through the debutante season, and then went on to study politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford. Was she a good student? She she was a good student. Um, she didn't finish with a first. In other words, she wasn't at the you know near or in the top ranking of the students. But she took on a very rigorous academic program. And interestingly, you, you get to see when she's at Oxford the sort of um, radical thinking she had. Now, at the time, she, she was still luxuriating in the, in the largesse of her parents, but at the, uh, the Union uh, Hall at, the, at Oxford University, 
women were not allowed. And she was determined to break this code. So she and a friend disguised themselves as men. They had themselves made up as men. They wore men's clothes and they went to the union. And um, it was, a, it was a, a little while before other men there realized that women had broken the code. And it was a, it was a news story. It was a big deal. And it showed the sort of um, bold character that she had. And this, uh, she, she eventually graduated from Oxford, then went on to get her PhD in London, and then went on to become an academic and teaching in college. And by 1968, she's teaching, and college protests are really taking off, not just in Great Britain, but of course in the United States and around the world. They actually began in Paris. That's where. A lot of unrest began and uh, students started protesting conditions at schools, the backgrounds of um, the, the academics at their institutions, and of course, uh, the Vietnam War. Yeah, so much going on in the 1960s. Unrest, discontent, uh, counterculture, the civil rights movement, and here is Rose absorbing it all as she moves from her bachelor's to her master's to her PhD. That's right. And in, in the interim, she comes to the United States. She got her master's degree at Mount Holyoke here in Massachusetts. Um, and there's always some weird connection to Massachusetts when you talk about art heist. But she came here. And again, um, her fellow students saw her as a little radical, but someone that was comfortable um, being uh, wealthy. And, and benefiting from her parents' wealth. But you make a good point about the period that this is happening in because, un, you know, uh, unbeknownst to her and not really in connection to her, in 1969, you see a civil rights movement happening in Ireland where um, young people are taking up the, the method of protest that Martin Luther King uh, made famous here in the United States is nonviolent protest. And they were looking for reunification, uh, you know, Republican movement in Ireland, but their nonviolent protests were met with violence, not just from counter protesters, the loyalists, but also from the police that was supposed to be there to protect them. And that sort of violence directed towards these protesters in this Irish civil rights movement led to a rebirth of the IRA and uh, violence uh, on the part of the IRA. And then uh, a couple of years later, in 1972, the famous Bloody Sunday incident takes place where innocent marchers, uh, Republican marchers in Ireland are uh, gunned down by British troops. So you're really seeing a, a large amount of unrest in the world and not just in uh, the United States uh, because of Vietnam, but also in the United Kingdom and in Northern Ireland because of the occupation of Northern Ireland by the British. Right, right. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in the early 60s became mesmerized by Cuba and Fidel Castro. And Rose Dugdale does as well. She visits Cuba, right? Yes, and that's another um, thing that happens in the late 1960s, that Fidel Castro had the idea that he would invite leading college students, primarily, from the East to come to Cuba to see his revolution, to see 
what was going on in his country. And um, he had these camps, they called them the, the Cinco de Mayo camps. And uh, a lot of thought leaders on campuses attended, mainly college juniors and seniors, including one, one uh, person that I like to point out attended was Christopher Hitchens. When they went, now you have to remember these are 22 year olds, but Rose went as well. But by 1968, she was 28 years old. So she's older, 1969, she's older than her fellow travelers to Cuba. Many of the students see the events in Havana and they watch uh, Castro give speeches and they take notice of the fact that what he is saying doesn't seem to be exactly true. He he talks in his speeches about how there's, Hitchens points out, he, he gives a speech and talks about how there's no prostitution in Havana and the speech is happening in Havana and in the crowd or around the crowd are prostitutes. And uh, they also take note of the fact that Castro's men are at the front of the group watching these speeches and they on cue stand up and give standing ovations that the uh, crowd follows and the speech has gone for a very long time and they become monotonous and it's very hot. And many of the students aren't impressed, but unlike them, Rose is in love with what she finds in Cuba and she really takes to the people and she goes into the villages and dances and and has parties with the, the people living in Cuba. And um, I think she's really moved by what she saw from this uh, new socialist dictatorship in Cuba. And she takes a lot of these radical revolutionary ideas with her back home. Right. So she is all charged up. She returns to London and she decides she's going to walk the walk, practice what she's been learning, go out and actively assist the poorest of London's poor, correct? That's correct. And she decides at that moment too that she's going to give up her riches. So she has an enormous amount of money that she had received and continued to receive from her father. And she um, left academia and went to Tottenham, and uh, which is a, a working class, lower working class area, and opens what they called a, a tenants union, which would essentially be a, a drop-in center for people in the area who were having economic difficulty or housing instability or problems with the government. They weren't getting the benefits that were due them. Basically an advocacy. And Rose became very famous in the area. They started calling her the Angel of Tottenham, not only because she was such a fierce advocate, the government civil servants would shiver when they saw her coming. She would slam slam their desks. In one instance, she turned the desk over. She was uh, the, the advocate that the people were looking for, but she also gave them money. She would give people money out of, their po- out of her pocket. She would um, help them become squatters in uh, apartments that weren't rented at the time. And she participated in a great number of protests and marches and union marches in Tottenham. And at that time, during one of these marches, she meets a man named Walter Heaton, who is a uh, equally fierce leader of these union protests. And uh, is a tall, handsome, strapping man. And um, he and Rose hit it off immediately. And they almost instantly become uh, a couple, despite the fact that Walter is married with two children and living with his wife. And um, 
they take up with each other and anywhere that you can see some civil unrest in the area, whether it be at a, outside a prison or in some sort of march, um, you could find Walter and Rose participating and carrying on their affair in Walter's home in front of his wife. Back after a brief word from our sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And we have returned. So at some point, she runs out of money, right? <laughs> she does. In 1973, some important things happened. Number one, as you mentioned, she ran out of money. You can only give away so much money. Interestingly, her boyfriend, Walter, who was a real man of the people, uh, died in the wool socialist, was more than happy to benefit from her money. He all of a sudden became the best dressed man in Tottenham. He wore the latest fashions and suits. She bought him a Mercedes Benz. She gave, uh, perhaps out of guilt, she gave his wife, uh, I think it was 28,000 pounds, which is an enormous amount of money in 1973. Walter, nobody's fool, made sure that that money couldn't be used without his permission by his wife. So that's going on. She's run out of money and needs money. At the same time, essentially, 
an um, important event happens in Great Britain, and that is four members of the IRA, Marion and Dolores Price, two very young women, Marion being the first female head of an active service unit. They take two men with them, Gerard Kelly and Hugh Feeney, and these four set off four car bombs in Great Britain. One, the, the biggest and most spectacular occurring outside the famous Old Bailey Courthouse. Now, they gave a heads up to the media so that nobody would be killed, but many people were seriously injured by these bombings. It was, a, as you can imagine, a major story in Great Britain. And uh, the four are immediately caught as they are trying to get a flight back home to Ireland that same day. And they're uh, imprisoned. And when they're imprisoned, this is March of 73, they're put into prison as regular criminals. They're not imprisoned. Uh, usually what the practice would be is that these uh, Republican freedom fighters, in their, in their view, would be sent to Nor Northern Ireland prison back in their hometown, but in prison. These four were kept in London in a prison and not given the I hate to say courtesies, but the accommodations that political prisoners would get, which would be they wouldn't have to wear the prison uniform, they could associate with each other, they had um, more visiting privileges. These four were treated as common criminals, and um, instantly they protested against this from inside the prison and went on hunger strikes, which really made the news uh, headlines around the world primarily because Marion and her older sister, Dolores, the leader here, are young, attractive females who don't fit the mold of terrorist. So you, when you would look at newspapers from the day, oftentimes you'd see the photo of these two uh, young uh, girls. They, they were 20 and 18 years old, leading this, this hunger strike. And it really struck a chord with the public all the way to the United States. So Rose took great notice of this as well. And this is around the time that she and Walter are not only have not only run out of money, but have become more radical, are not in a large scale, but shipping arms over to the IRA from um, Britain proper, and now have seen this hunger strike and decide to really uh, increase their efforts on behalf of the Irish Republicans. So they commit to the IRA, but they need more money to fund their goals. So they turn to robbery. And their first target is Rose's own family home. That's right. So um, it's an interesting thing to set the scene. You have these young people in Great Britain who are being held as political prisoners and on a hunger strike. You have Walter and Rose now without money, her father is essentially cut her off. They need more money. They're operating out of this Tottenham Claimants Union and with a big Irish flag outside in the front, which is pretty amazing in 1973 to be in, in England and have this Irish flag up. And they decide they need money. And Rose turns where she has always turned, and that's to her father. But this time, she just, they decide to steal from the parents' estate. They know her entire family has gone to the Epsom Derby, which is the equivalent of the Kentucky Derby here. And this is a, a weekend vacation. The family's left their estate 
and Rose and Walter and two of Walter's criminal friends go to the estate and they steal art and paintings and silver antiques valued at about $182,000 then. So it's a big theft. Um, they're not, but it's an interesting thing about these two or about Rose. She has the criminal mindset, but she's not a great criminal. So um, when they go and they, they steal from the home, instantly people knew it was Rose was behind it because, for instance, every, every part of the house had been ransacked except her bedroom. Um, all of these valuable antiques were stolen except this one gift that she had given her mother. The dogs in the, at the estate didn't bark that night when the cr- criminals came because the dogs all loved her and they knew her. So the, the people in the other part of the, this gigantic estate didn't hear any animals rustling. So they, they figured, you know, these things pointed to Rose having done this. And soon enough, they were uh, arrested and charged with the theft from her father's home in Devon. Now, at this point, I would think most people in her situation would be scared, hopefully remorseful. She kind of revels in this attention. She views all of this as a prime time opportunity to share her political views with the world for anyone that will listen to her. Well said. She and Walter studied the Black Panthers in the United States closely and knew that the Black Panthers would use their time in the courtroom to make political statements that would definitely get covered by the press. And that's what these two did too. So when they were on trial, uh, Rose's father had to testify and she was cruel to her father. And, and she says in court, I love you, daddy, but I hate everything you stand for. It, essentially because he was part of the wealthy class. She is convicted, as is Walter Heaton. But something interesting again happens here, and that because Walter had a criminal history, he was imprisoned and he received an eight-year sentence. Rose had no criminal history. It's just a minor, a couple of misdemeanors from these protests and such. And in a shocking, shockingly bad character judgment, the judge sentences her to um, a fine and probation and says that she is unlikely to commit crime again in the future. And it's another great insight into the times. This is late 1973. People, even judges, didn't have the sense that a woman could be behind these crimes. So this this theft from the home was Rose's idea. The idea that she was following Walter Heaton around and that he was leading her into a life of radicalism was completely wrong. Rose was leading Walter and had the opportunity to speak to Walter and he agrees completely with this. You know, he he admires her and she was leading him. She was the leader and it's hard it was hard in 1973 for people to picture a woman being the force, especially when you're talking about criminality. So Rose is released and she erupts in the courtroom saying that it's pure class judge uh, justice that Walter went to jail and she did not. It's almost as if she wanted to go to jail, almost as if serving some time in jail would give her a, uh, a badge of honor, would establish her amongst the radicals that she she seeks to cooperate with and, and seeks to abet or, or lead. So she is released. He goes to jail and Walter 
again, not a modest person, says that his jail sentence was the biggest injustice since Christ. But he's gone. And Rose tells him, you know, pledges her love and her loyalty to him. He, he's locked up around Halloween. And every week, every time she can go to, to, to jail to visit him, she does. She's outside the jail picketing with signs that saying that Walter was railroaded, essentially. Um, he's the man of the people. Everything she could. In fact, she even resurrected an old charge against herself, a, a motor vehicle charge in court so that Walter could be released to testify for a day so she could be near him. So it's this passionate love affair that suddenly ends around Christmas in 1973 when she stops visiting Walter without warning and disappears and makes her way over to Ireland, leaving the person who was ostensibly the love of her life behind in jail as she moves over to Ireland to take the fight to Northern Ireland. Right. So she does not pine for him. Uh, she finds someone else pretty quickly, a man named Eddie Gallagher. And like with Heaton, she becomes the dominant personality in the relationship. And she's older than him too, right? Exactly right. And that's an interesting uh, switch here because she was significantly younger than Walter and significantly older than Eddie Gallagher. And when I say significantly older, I think she was around eight or nine years older, but we're talking about people who are in their thirties. So that's a, you know, that's a big gap. And uh, Eddie came from a small town, but he was a very strong advocate for Irish republicanism. And he was very radical. And she takes up with him immediately, right after she left Walter. And she leads him around. And no sooner is she in England than they, they um, hatch a plot, uh, Rose and Eddie Gallagher, to bomb a Royal Ulster Constabulary barracks in Strabane. Now, Strabane in Northern Ireland is the at the time the most bombed town, and uh, it's really suffered. And Rose and Eddie decide to get uh, four milk churns and pack them with explosives. And Rose is part of this. In a later interview, she said it was at around this time that she decided that she was willing to take lives for the cause, that people would have to die. And they pack these milk churns full of explosives and they hijack a helicopter. Rose posing as a journalist who needed a helicopter captain to fly her over parts of Northern Ireland for a story she was working on. And when they, on the appointed day, when they go to, when she goes to, to meet the helicopter operator at the helicopter, she's joined by three men, including Eddie, who are armed and they hijack uh, the, the, the helicopter and tell the captain exactly where he needs to fly them. The, they had so much explosives that they had to leave a milk churn behind because it was too heavy to depart. And they fly over towards Straban and they drop these bombs aimed at the barracks, but they fall harmlessly into the water and one fell on the rocks and it didn't explode because again, they, they had these criminal ideas, but they weren't great at executing them. They didn't make the bombs properly. Thank God. You know, what happens is 
the police see these bombs falling. Nothing comes of them. The media comes and interviews the, the commander at the barracks, and, and he sort of chuckles and makes fun of their aerial attack. But the fact of the matter is that there was nothing funny or lighthearted about this. This would have been a mass casualty operation. Many, many people of what innocent people would have died uh, if these bombs had exploded. Uh, the police were very serious about what had happened. And um, uh, I think they were trying to quell the public's fears, but they instantly turned their sights on Rose Dugdale. They knew by the alias that she had used to set up to her appointment with the helicopter captain that it was Rose Dugdale. And they put up wanted flyers in uh, Northern Ireland. The security forces are looking for her to question her about this bombing attempt in Straban. Uh, the, the flyer is intentionally unflattering in the way they describe her. Uh, so they're after her. Now Rose Dugdale is in their sights, and they're serious about trying to catch her before she's actually able to kill people. Amazingly, just before these flyers start going up, this is February of 1974, two days before the flyers start circulating, a art theft occurs at the Kenwood House in Britain, and a painting by Johannes Vermeer called The Guitar Player is stolen from, stolen from Kenwood House. And ultimately, the people who stole that painting, unidentified, start making overtures to the authorities and to the media, saying that they, they want to trade the painting back for the Price Sisters, the car bombers that are held in, in England, they want them released to a prison in Northern Ireland uh, to end the hunger strike and to get them back home. They will return this painting. So there's a lot going on at this moment in late February to get the Price Sisters back to Northern Ireland and to commit terrorist attacks against the British, um, all involving Rose Dugdale. Right. It's an odd situation, right? Here is this Oxford-educated English woman trying to ingratiate herself with the IRA. It's strange. Yep, very strange. It's strange for the people. So she's on the run, and um, they're, because of Eddie, they're they, you know, in his connections to the IRA. Now, it's important to note that although he's a member of the IRA, the IRA itself looks at him as sort of a loose cannon who's radical operations sometimes hurt what the IRA was trying to accomplish. He would, there are instances where they, he would, there would be a bombing that was ill-timed that hurt a uh, talks that the IRA was having for maybe a ceasefire. If the IRA was a lot of things, but one of them, they had a very organized structure uh, with a, a chain of command and Eddie didn't believe in these chains of command. So you have to picture Eddie and Rose out in the countryside doing their own thing, their own radical attacks. And now they're on the run because of this attempted bombing in Straban. And though people were these IRA safe houses, you know, Eddie was okay there. They still looked at Rose with a lot of skepticism because she was everything they stood against. She was this aristocratic British woman and people who were living the troubles, not reading about them, but living them saw her as maybe someone who was just having uh, fun. You know, she was sowing her wild oats and just experiencing some excitement at their expense. They didn't know what to make of her. They didn't know if she was genuine and for real. So 
it was she had trouble when they would go to these safe houses. She would be looked at with skepticism. And interestingly, part of her disguise was to dress in a very feminine fashion because she had never before. She was always in pseudo military garb with you know olive drab jackets and and trousers. And now she was wearing high heels and skirts to try to throw off uh, the scent of the of the um, special security forces that were hunting her down. So let's go back for just a moment, if you don't mind, to the theft at the Kenwood house. This was basically a smash and grab, right? Yes. And that's what most art heists are. They're smash and grabs. They're, whether the institution is opened or closed, they're almost always instances where somebody, you know, they break a window, they pull something out and they flee. Or, or they go into a museum in broad daylight and pull something off a wall and flee. And um, But that's what this was. It was a smash and grab. It was well-planned, though, I will say. I mean, the way they uh, secured the doors from the outside and they cut the telephone lines, which gave them the opportunity to get away from the Kenwood house before they could be caught. The park surrounding the Kenwood house, this is 1974. So um, homosexual activity was frowned upon back then, you know, it's interesting to be speaking to you during Pride Month and be referring to the fact that it, there was a time, and it brings it home, where people had to have their relationships undercover, and they would be um, in this park in the dark uh, with each other. And though they were witnesses, many of these um, the gay people, the LGBTQ crowd in this in this park, no one wanted to come forward as a witness because they didn't want to admit having been in that park. So there were no leads as to who, who stole this painting until the painting's captors started making overtures about the release of the Price Sisters. And that's when uh, the authorities realized that there was that this heist was adjacent to republicanism. Yeah. R Rose was never formally accused of the Kenwood theft, right? What do you think about her, her possible involvement? Well, so in a in an epilogue to the book, I I write you know because I'm a art theft investigator, I write an analysis of this crime at the Kenwood House, and it's my belief that she was involved in it. And um, interestingly, fast forwarding to this particular painting, the guitar player, it's recovered. Uh, the con the conventional wisdom and the official story is that it was recovered through the use of a psychic who told the police where they could find the frame and then later where they could find the painting. But the painting was recovered in the days after Rose is later arrested. It's my conjecture, but um, evidence-based, that Rose was behind this theft of the Vermeer from the Kenwood house because of the timing of her arrest and its recovery, because of the, uh, the MO of the heist at the Kenwood house, because of the motive for the theft at the Kenwood house um, and the artist himself, Vermeer, having been targeted. Um, also, there's some information that uh, special police uh, with confidential information that couldn't be publicly shared would not acknowledge certain pieces of information that point to Rose being involved in the Kenwood house heist. And I would encourage your listeners uh, to buy the book and read my analysis of of who stole this Vermeer. Um, and I think your readers will 
pretty much agree that it seems that Rose and Eddie were behind this heist as well. One more quick break. We will be right back. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned once more. It makes sense, though. The IRA had, had never been in the business of, of stealing art be, before she joined their ranks. She was not at all an art expert, but you write that she had enough of a background in art to at least know what, what paintings were famous and potentially valuable because of their fame. Right. So Rose, uh, an interesting thing about art heists, and I'm talking about masterpieces in, you know, big heists that writ large around the world is that the people who pull them off are not art experts. That's on, that only really occurs in the movies. The people that steal art just go for big names that they've heard of before because they know that means a lot of money. They're not 
connoisseurs. Uh, Rose is not a person who operated in the art world, but she's much better educated than any other art thief, right? She's an Oxford educated PhD. Her mother worked in an art gallery. Her mother did watercolors. And when Rose was at the Oxford Union, she helped a movement to put art up. She helped select the art that would be shown there. She understood great art. So fast forwarding to April, there's another um, art heist and Rose is behind it. She and Eddie and two other men go to the Rossborough House in, uh, in Ireland, and they, uh, they, they use a ruse to get into the house. Uh, this, now, you have to picture the Rossborough House is the longest house in all of Ireland. It's a gigantic estate. It's the sort of thing you see in a Harry Potter movie, right? It's like <laughs> Hogwarts uh, times two. It's gigantic, and it's basically it's, it's owned and lived in by uh, Sir Alfred Bight and his wife Clementine, um, who are heirs to the De Beers diamond fortune. And it's populated with art, museum quality art. And Rose goes to the door at night, early evening. And when uh, one of the house help answers the door, young, a young uh, man, I think he was 14, he's the son of one of, the, one of the employees, Rose uses broken French to say that her car is broken down and the boy can see the car in the distance and he lets her in, and then her three cohorts storm in with guns, and they're very um, aggressive, and they get all of the house help, and they, they bind them and tie them up and get them out of the way. They go to the study where Sir Alfred and his wife are listening to uh, the gramophone, and um, the, the pair, the aristocrats there, are really taken aback. They think it must be a joke when they're told to get on the floor and they're basically hogtied and not until one of the men hits Sir Alfred in the head with his gun and Sir Alfred is bleeding from his head do do they realize this is for real and the, the thieves take uh, Lady Bite and they drag her to the dirt basement and they leave her there and Rose drops her French accent and directs the three men with her to, uh, to, as to which 19 works to take because she understood great art, right? So she's pointing out the Goya painting above the fireplace under which Sir Alfred and his wife were engaged. She points out paintings by Rubens, um, a whole bevy of great museum quality art and a painting by Vermeer, uh, lady and her maid reading a letter. And this is a major heist. Right, they're, they've taken uh, it, it. I think it would probably be safe to say it was the biggest art heist of its day, and take off with these nineteen works. The men that were with her would have no idea what to steal. Only Rose could tell them what to take, and she did so extremely well. The paintings that that she took would would hang in any museum in the United States for sure, and of course the police respond immediately. And there's a, a great anecdote. Most people didn't know what was in this house, wouldn't assume that paintings, multi-million dollar paintings were in this home. In fact, when the detectives are racing there and they've got the word of what happened, they radio back to headquarters and say, millions of dollars worth of art have been stolen from the Rossborough house. And the sergeant back at the station radios back 
there aren't millions of dollars worth of paintings in all of Ireland. Like nobody knows what, the value of what's in the Rossborough house. But when they get there soon enough, they realize, uh, yeah, this is a you know world-class collection and a major art heist. And they see uh, a lot of similarities between the way the heist was committed at the Rossborough house and uh, the way it was committed at the Kenwood house as well notwithstanding the fact that Vermeer's was stolen in both. And if you don't mind, Eric, as an aside, there's a fascinating tale about the connection between the two Vermeer paintings that were stolen, which the thieves most likely did not know. But these two paintings, uh, the guitar player and a uh, lady um, writing a letter, I, I, I made a mistake when I said it earlier, it was lady, a lady writing a letter with her maid. These two paintings, um, Vermeer had them in his home. And when he died, like so many great artists, he died penniless. And his wife took those two, brought them to the baker, the bread baker, and traded those for the debt that she owed and for, and for bread. And, you know, going to the bread, bread baker was um, a tantamount to you or I going to the grocery store now. This was an important debt that she had to pay. These two paintings were sold together by Vermeer's wife 300 years previous and then make their way from uh, the Netherlands, from Delft, to the Kenwood House and to Ireland. And then in 1974, within weeks of each other, are both stolen. And it's really something out of a Hollywood script that these two paintings would have this similar origin travels and ultimate, ultimately be involved in crimes at the same time. Yeah, it, it's amazing that they were probably hanging on a wall next to each other 300 years ago. Yep. And now here they are together again. Absolutely. And for the same cause, because Rose and Eddie immediately make the same overtures with their Vermeer that they want the, the, uh, Price sisters in uh, Jerry Kelly and Hugh Feeney sent back to Northern Ireland. They want the hunger strike to end, but they're surprised and the world is surprised when Dolores Price says to the media through her father that they want them to give the paintings back. Dolores is an art lover and she does not want uh, their release to be earned because paintings have been taken away from the public. She and her sister want to be moved based on the merits and based on their hunger strike. They want to be sent back to Northern Ireland. Uh, ultimately, um, the police conduct a major manhunt looking for these paintings stolen from the Rossborough house. They search 400 houses. Uh, they're visited by police. Again, Rose and Eddie aren't great criminals. They think that by going out to a secluded area out in Ireland in West Cork that they won't be found, but they stick out like sore thumbs. Uh, in places like this, a getaway car is identified immediately, and the police ultimately um, catch Rose. They do not catch Eddie and the two compatriots. Only Rose is captured, and she's uh, arrested. Uh, initially, she doesn't give her identity. She follows the IRA methodology of not saying who she is, but she's arrested, and she's tried in court, and... Um, famously and dramatically when she's asked how she 
pleads to the charges of this theft and the bombing in Straban, she says that she uh, pleads uh, that she is proudly and incorruptibly guilty. And it's her moment, right? Just like in the prior appearance in court, this is her moment on, uh, on the soapbox. She has the bully pulpit and she declares herself proudly and incorruptibly guilty and rails on against uh, the British occupation of Northern Ireland. And it's covered by the media exactly as she wishes. And she's sentenced to prison. And it's an interesting thing because when you see photos of her being carted off away from court, she's smiling and she's raising a defiant fist. And this is you know, in my heart, having studied her for years and written about her, my belief is that this was what she wanted, that she wanted to go to prison, that she could earn her badge of honor, that she could become a, a true freedom fighter, a true rebel, because now she's going to prison. And um, in fact, that becomes true, you know, in, in a weird juxtaposition she would look at someone like Dolores Price, who was born into the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And her father was an IRA fighter in the 20s. And Dolores became disenchanted with the IRA later in her life after the, the Good Friday Accords. She, she, she didn't want to settle for peace. She wanted a free Northern Ireland. Rose, who initially wasn't accepted by the IRA, they seemed to cross paths where later in her life, She's welcomed into the IRA and she's seen as a hero. So Rose is accepted where uh, Dolores and Marion uh, veer away from the, the IRA because they're unhappy with the route it took. And um, the way the two sort of swap positions in the end is fascinating to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How does her very British family her mother and father react to all of this? You know, as a, as a parent, I was really fascinated by it because Rose ends up in prison. By now, she is known around the world as this Oxford PhD debutante who has committed these crimes and embarrassed her family and railed against them in court. But the parents never abandon her. So when Rose is in prison... To, show, to, to prove how quickly she left Wally for Eddie Gallagher, she gives birth in prison. If you track it back nine months, it, it's not, you know, she became pregnant not long after she got to Ireland. And she, it's the first time a person gives birth in an Irish prison. And then soon thereafter, she gets married to Eddie while in prison. Interestingly, her parents support her the entire time. They send all sorts of gifts for the child that is born, Rory, Rory Gallagher. Um, the mother sends watercolor paintings that she does for the child. And when the parents ultimately pass away, Rose is given an equal share of the estate they leave behind. They never gave up on their daughter, which is, I guess you have to be a parent to understand it really well, but they, they, they never gave up on their Rose. Wow, yeah, that that's unconditional love right there. My gosh. It sure is. Yeah. So these events happened in the 70s. Many of the figures in this story are still alive. What was your interview process like? 
Well, it was difficult because though it, it was 50 years ago, there were there are a lot of people who were not alive anymore. I, after initially getting overtures that Rose would speak to me, speak with me, she ultimately did not. Uh, something happened here in Boston in recent years that scared people away from speaking about the IRA. There was a oral history project at Boston College about the troubles, and some people spoke on the condition that their interviews uh, would never be released, um, but. The British government got word of this, and they and the United States government fought to release these thought-to-be confidential interviews. And moreover, Dolores Price gave an interview on the condition wouldn't be released until she died. And then, sadly, she suddenly died. So stuff she said about the IRA, things she said about murders, including accusing Jerry Adams as having ordered a murder, uh, were released. So people in IRA in the IRA were very reluctant to give permission for her to speak to me uh, in particular. So I didn't get to speak to her. I did get to speak to Walter Heaton, who was her her comrade and lover for years. And um, I let him review the book and he said it was uh, perfectly accurate. I did get to speak to a Scotland Yard investigator who uh, looked for the Kenwood House paintings and, and um gave me insight into Rose. And an interesting thing happened. People who were unwilling to speak to me before the book was written later came forward to me after the book was published and they read it and saw that it wasn't a hit piece and that it was a very, very fair biography uh, by all the critics that they started telling me their Rose Dugdale stories after the fact. And I appreciate them nonetheless. But, um, you know, there's a a heck of a lot of... um, research went into the book. I spent about three years researching it. Uh, it's a 300-page book with 600 footnotes, and, and it, it's essentially uh, bulletproof and, and right on the money, and there's no disputes about the the facts that I laid forth in um, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer. That's great. Uh, Eddie Gallagher never gave up on her when she was in prison. He, he even made an effort to break her out. Eddie, uh, always ever the radical, um, he and an IRA woman kidnapped a very popular and wealthy industrialist in um, Ireland, demanding Rose be released. And um, it's amazing because when I was first researching the story of Rose Dugdale in relation to these art heists, when I would ask people about Rose, most people remembered her because of this kidnapping, because that was such a major story. And I'll leave it to the reader to see how that turned out. But I will say that uh, it's just a fascinating story. You know, Rose, Rose's life is remarkable. She's a truly remarkable woman. And uh, many parallels are drawn between her and, and Patty Hearst, who's kidnapping by the uh, Symbionese Liberation Army in the United States was contemporaneous to these events. It was 1974. And, you know, a, a quick read would say there's a lot of similarities between Rose and Patty Hearst, but a careful read shows that they couldn't be more opposite. Rose wasn't kidnapped by anybody. She ran headfirst into this action. She was the leader. She was the leader of Walter and Eddie. Patric- uh, Patricia Hearst was kidnapped by this radical group and became enamored with the leader of the group and then assumed her her militant stance. When Rose was arrested and tried, 
She, as I mentioned, pled proudly and incorruptibly guilty to her crimes, where when Patricia Hearst was tried in court, she fought the charges against her vehemently and hired probably the most famous attorney in America at the time, F. Lee Bailey, to represent her. So you could see the difference. Rose was a true believer, a true revolutionary. And, you know, sometimes people get the sense that I, I really like her. But the fact is, I, I think the things that she did were horrific. I mean, the idea of bombing a number of innocent people, the idea of stealing art for your cause, those things are offensive to me. But I cannot help but admire the fact that she was truly committed to her her ideals. She was no pretender. And in that sense, I admire Rose Dugdale. So she's revered by Sinn Féin. Mm-hmm. So when they look back on her involvement with their fight in, in the 70s, do they believe she actually helped their cause? Or is she seen more as an iconic figure, beloved because she was committed to them to the end? I think they see her as uh, an icon, but I also think they see her not as not necessarily someone who advanced the cause, but tried. And I think that's the way Republicans look at people. You know, did Bobby Sands' hunger strike advance the cause? Well, I, I would say that one did because it, great, it gained a lot of um, sympathy around the world. But it's the attempt. It's the, the uh, full-throated and full-bodied commitment to the cause of uh, Republicanism that people admire, and she's greatly admired to this day. And I think one of the big reasons that she's so admired is because it's a result of what only time can provide, right? As time went on, when she got out of prison, she stayed. She still lives in Dublin. She never left. She never um, uh, went back to the wealth of Devonshire in England. She stayed amongst these people. She doesn't live a high life at all. She lives a very, very modest life. She doesn't go out and seek attention. She doesn't go out and seek reporters. Um, She shuns them, as I can attest. And I think they see a nobility in that, in the fact that she's she committed herself after prison to working on Sinn Féin's educational projects and in their in their uh, literature and never gave up the cause. In fact, there's a great picture of her in a wheelchair brought to the Cuban embassy to sign the regrets book when Fidel Castro died. You see her in parades. You see her with Jerry Adams. Um, She's completely fully accepted by the Republicans late in her life. And I can't think, you know, knowing her from the research I've done, I can't think of anything that would bring her more joy than the fact that these people respect her and honor her. I'd like to ask you just briefly about your book, Stealing Rembrandts. Sure. In in that book, you look at the history of art theft. What was the oldest or maybe the most uh, sensational art theft in history, in your opinion? Well, there were two, and they were within a couple of decades of each other. The um the one that always comes to people's mind is the Mona Lisa theft in 1911 from the Louvre, which was taken by a contracted worker, an Italian named Vincenzo Perugia, uh, stole the Mona Lisa. And it was that theft that made the Mona Lisa what it is today. It was not the most famous painting in the world until it was stolen at the Louvre in 1911 and then ultimately recovered. But 
just at the end of the 19th century, a Gainsborough painting of the Duchess of Devonshire was stolen by a uh, notorious thief about whom there was a, a great biography written called uh, The Napoleon of Crime, the man that uh, Moriarty was based on uh, in the Sherlock Holmes books. And he stole that painting, the Duchess of Devonshire, to try to free an associate of his from jail, which is an interesting thing. His, his initial reason for stealing it was not money. Nowadays, when you look at big art heists, including almost every heist that I enumerate in stealing Rembrandt's, the impetus is money. It's always money. What winds up happening, though, is because these paintings are so valuable and so highly recognizable, you can't sell them. So the idea that you see somebody uh, steals a masterpiece and sells it to some billionaire somewhere is a Hollywood fiction. But that's, that's what makes them harder to find because when you can't sell them, you don't give them back. You hide them in case you could use them in some way in the future. And when a painting is hidden, it stays hidden. You know, they don't, they don't leave the home to go get milk or medicine. So they become very, very difficult to recover. And uh, the reason I wrote Stealing Rembrandt's was to serve the community I work in, to teach people in the museum world, in the investigative world, what really happens. Because at that time, everything I was reading was portraying art theft and the criminality behind it incorrectly. And uh, the idea behind writing this book was to make a contribution to the field. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I, I enjoyed as I read your book what was learning more about Johann Vermeer. And you talk about the power and the beauty of his art. So I went to the internet, started looking at all of his, his paintings, thinking about them. And it was really a nice uh, side experience to, to the main experience of reading your book, if that makes sense. Are you warming my heart, Eric? You're warming my heart. That's the goal. You know, the ultimate goal when I, when I give lectures, I teach a course in art crime at Harvard, when I uh, uh, talk to people even here in the museum, ultimately you want people to come away with the understanding of how important these cultural treasures are and that you read the book and it ultimately led you not in a true crime direction, but towards Vermeer and an appreciation for what is lost when a painting is stolen. Because that's my great motivation is recovering the painting stolen from the Garden Museum, including a Vermeer. And the fact that it led you to start looking into Vermeer and appreciating his art and who he is and the, the, the magical nature of these paintings is the ultimate goal. So I'm very, very pleased to hear you say that. Oh, that's, that's cool. So for people who want to delve more into your work, uh, you have a website, right? Yep, there's a, it's a one-stop shop. If you go to uh, anthonyamore.com, uh, my last name is A-M-O-R-E, anthonyamore.com, you can see my books, you can uh, uh, get in touch with me, you can book me for speaking engagements, uh, learn anything and, and more about me that you're, that you're interested in, and I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was a complete pleasure, and I, I sincerely mean that. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Anthony Amore. He is the author of The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, the true story of Rose Dugdale and the Rusboro House Heist. 
This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.